but food, fellowship, and sports, that was all part of the first Thanksgiving. Where we largely get it wrong is the time they took really thinking and acknowledging what God had done in their life. And yeah. also keep in mind, these were people whose lives had been devastated, but they recognized the only reason they were still here at all was because of what God had done. They were able to look and, and see the good that God had done for them along the way in spite of their hardship. And this is something that I think as Americans, you know, so often we, we don't recognize the blessings of God as much as we should. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Thanks for tuning in to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. My guest today is Tim Barton. Tim Barton is the president of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization that highlights America's history and heroes with an emphasis on our nation's religious, moral, and constitutional heritage. Tim has been a guest on numerous national television and radio programs, including The Ben Shapiro Show, one of my favorites, The Glenn Beck Program, Louder with Crowder, TBN, Andrew Walmack Ministries, Believer's Voice of Victory, and many others. And now he can add to that prestigious list, indie thinker, and basically you can just retire. So, uh, Tim, thanks so much for being on. Well, I'm glad I've now made it. Yeah, you've uh, arrived. It, everything was building up to this moment. So yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely, dude. So um, I, I'm really excited to have you on because I wanted to talk with you about Thanksgiving. So before uh, we actually jump into that, uh, I'll say happy Thanksgiving to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, so you're a historian, and you've done a lot of work. If people go to your website on Wall Builders, and we'll put that down below in the description for the video, uh, they'll see some lots of things about history, but some things specifically about Thanksgiving. And so I wanted to bring you on today just to have that conversation so that we can reframe our celebration uh, based upon uh, the reality of what, what, what happened and the history of Thanksgiving, especially with a lot of the reframing of history that's going on right now in our culture with things like the 1619 Project and, and other things like that, where there's this narrative that wants to try to undermine like real accurate history and try to put an agenda on top of history rather than to just see history for what it was and is. So, um, so I'm super stoked about uh, having that conversation with you. So let's just start like uh, before we jump into any of the more lofty topics, tell us a little bit about Wall Builders and what you guys do there. Yeah, so, so we do a lot with American history. A, mostly, we have a very unique collection uh, of roughly 100,000 original documents, uh, up to about 160,000 when you include um, uh, some aspect of those documents, but almost all of it is from early American history. So it's considered the largest private collection of original documents. We have actual letters and journals from guys like George Washington or Thomas wow. Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin. So what we do is we go back to the original sources where so often today, we, as you mentioned, we're hearing so many narratives and oftentimes the narratives don't fit with the reality of what the original documents say, what the history says. And yep. we have, we've been in a culture for so long where, you know, we've, we grew up and I'm saying this as someone who's almost 40 years old. I mean, we grew up kind of, there was, there was a level of trust you had in institutions. Yeah. And so if your professor said something, you're like, well, it must be true. My professor said it. Uh, you know, I remember having conversations with my parents when I had to help them understand just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's <laughs> true. Yeah. But, you know, we grew up with kind of this institutional trust that, well, we, we generally trusted what people told us. And actually, uh, come to find out there were a lot of people who either had bad information or who uh, had a bad character in what they were telling, right? Had an agenda. 
and, and a lot of what people are hearing today just isn't true. So we try to take those original documents and go back and tell the truth of American history from original documents. So therefore, we're taking our perspective largely out of it as much as we can and saying this is just what the original documents say. Therefore, this is probably closer to what actually happened. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's great. So let's talk about why history is so important. Um, so I'm going to read a quote to you, and then I'm going to I'm going to make a statement, and and I'd just like to hear you kind of respond to that because. I, I'm a history teacher myself, and I, I also learned bukus of history in my kind of traditional education from uh, theological training, which you obviously dig into a bunch of uh, patristic doctrine and patristic writing and church history stuff. So steeped a lot in history, and I fell in love with history. Um, but, but this quote here, I think, in my mind, kind of illustrates for me the importance of history. I'd love to hear what you think about the importance of history. So this is from John Piper, and this is something he just recently said. And people will know by the tenor of what he's talking about. He's talking about Trump versus other things. So he says, I remain baffled that so many Christians consider the sins of unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant boastfulness, unrepentant vulgarity to be only toxic for our nation, while policies that endorse baby killing, sex switching, freedom limiting, and socialistic overreach are viewed as deadly. And so he's juxtaposing these two things here. Uh, one as just toxic, and he's kind of slapping Christians on the wrist for calling those toxic and not deadly, and then saying these are deadly. So the only, and I, and I appreciate John Piper, but the only way that I think that you can come away with a quote like that is if you do not understand history at all. It is very clear that um, that that socialism, that fr limit freedom limiting ideology, wherever they may find themselves, are dangerous to people. The 19th century is one of the bloodiest centuries in human. Uh, sorry, the 20th century is one of the bloodiest centuries in human history, um, and you can lay almost every single one of those casualties, mass casualties, at the foot of an ideology, Marxist communism. Um, and uh, and and so, with that being said, obviously we need to interpret and understand threats when we see those threats. And I think history helps us do that. If you understand history, you can be proactive instead of reactive. And you can say, hey, this has happened in the past. And so we're on guard for it in the future. So what do you think the importance of, of truly understanding history accurately is for specifically for the Christian who is mainly my audience, but but people writ large? Yeah, so I, I, I probably want to come back and, re and revisit some of that statement that we just unfolded yeah. uh, already. But the importance of history, big picture, you know, there's an old adage that says those who do not learn from history, who don't know their history, are doomed to repeat it. And this is why, you know, as you mentioned with uh, this notion of socialism or communism or uh, Marxism, responsible for more than 100 million deaths in the 20th century alone, yeah. you now have people who are are wearing shirts to you know that, that highlight Mao or, or Che or some of these communist dictators who actually were responsible for mass genocides. And because we don't know history, we think they were largely good people. When you look at some surveys where you see 75% of college students think socialism is a good economic system, they think capitalism is evil, the only way you can come away with thinking socialism is a good economic system is you don't understand history. You yeah. don't know what socialism has done to other nations. And I mean, really, not only not understanding history, it's not being a critical thinker, which I actually think that people who know the word of God and study history are the best critical thinkers because it gives you context to be able to critically think. Yeah. When, when you don't know the word of God, you don't have a foundation for truth. And this is one of the major problems in our culture is 
we, we live in a very uh, morally subjective climate yeah. that, right, it's kind of up to the individual and how they feel and what they want and what they think. And in this moment, well, here's my truth, as if truth was purely subjective and everyone has to determine their own truth. That's not the way truth works. We, we might could look at the notion, some people say, well, there should be collective truth, right? We should vote on it or whatever society determines, that's acceptable. But historically, that hasn't worked either. You, you need an objective reality beyond yourself. And this is where the Bible is the best objective standard that there's ever been. And it's been the best guide for human history. The people that have used and applied the Bible, been guided by the Bible, have done the best for society, have done the best for others, have done the best to advance civilization. And America is one of those prime examples. But the Bible gives a foundation of moral truth, but then also studying history. History helps give you that context that you can be a critical thinker and go, wait a second, my professor just said that socialism is the best economic system. Just I, I, thinking of history for a second, I would like to know, is, is there any nation in the history of the world that once they embraced socialism, yeah, pure socialism. that nation actually increased their individual prosperity or their individual freedoms? Because as an individual, I really like the notion of having money and that I can go and spend what I, I want and buy what I want and wear the clothes I want and get the vehicle and the food. And I, I like having money to give me choices. I also like the notion of freedom that I'm able to make all the choices I want to make about where I'm going to go to college or where I go to church or what, what job I want to have. Every nation that's embraced socialism, it has decreased individual prosperity and individual freedom. And so if you care about money or freedom, you shouldn't be a fan of socialism. So knowing the Bible, knowing history helps give you context to be a critical thinker. And a lot of the choices that we are making right now, you know, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who think they're coming up with these brand new, fresh ideas, right? Then the, the notion that, well, the people who failed with these socialistic policies before, they didn't do it right. As if you're going to come up with this brand new idea. No, there's nothing new under the sun. The same human nature exists. The same flaws exist. The yeah. same imperfect imperfections in humanity exist. And so you're going to come up against the same problems. When you go back to like Jamestown, go back to the pilgrims, they actually tried the experiment of socialism, both colonies, mm. and both of them had incredible failures with socialism. And if anybody in the world could have really made socialism work, it probably would have been the pilgrims because those are the people who came over like with a Puritan work ethic, yeah. right? They worked really hard. They were a, a Christian community. They brotherly loved, they shared together equally. And after a couple of years, they realized this system really isn't very good. And they changed that system. This is where learning from history, we would not be putting ourselves in a position to repeat the mistakes that people have already made before. So I, I was told one time by a professor in college, and it stuck with me really well, is there's, there's two ways to learn lessons. Either you can learn the hard way from yeah. your own experience, or you can learn from other people's experience. That's what history does. Yeah. The more we study history, the more we can learn lessons from other people's experience and not have to go through those hard experiences ourselves. Yeah, that's great. And so I, I'm, I do want to dig into a little bit further on Jamestown and Plymouth. But before we do so, um, I want to kind of interact with what you just said, but I, I, but I know that we will talk about this forever. So I want to give you a chance. You said you wanted to jump back to the actual quote that I quoted. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of respond to that if there was something you wanted to say. Yeah, so, so uh, certainly a, a person like Piper, uh, Pastor Piper, obviously has an incredible foundation in theology. Yeah. With it being said, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is even as people that study the Bible and study history will know, is that so often the people God chooses to use in mighty ways were people who had some of the greatest flaws. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's one of the things as you study the Bible, some of God's greatest leaders are people with incredible flaws. And if you go back to the 2016 election, right, where you had the options between uh, Hillary Clinton or the options between Donald Trump, 
both of them are incredibly flawed individuals. Yeah, which for sure. In reality, you know, sometimes we 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 talk about how bad candidates are. Every single election, every election, everyone without exception, every single election is a choice between the lesser of two evils. That's right. Because there's flawed humanity involved. Where yeah. it makes a difference is you look at the policies they are promoting. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, with with the notion, right, President Trump, unrepentant sin when it comes to sexual morality. Okay. There's no doubt that that man has a lot of sin in his life yeah. as right not to not to be the guy with a plank in my eye pointing out a speck in somebody else's eye. Obviously, we, every one of us is jacked up and needs Jesus. That's the reason Jesus came. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what's interesting is Donald Trump, I actually think, is reminiscent in some ways of a character in the Bible like Samson, hmm. where if you're going to say, right, well, Donald Trump never repented for these sins. Okay, did Samson ever repent of his sins? No, but did God still use Samson? Yes. Now, one of the sad parts of the story of Samson is God used Samson more in his death than in his life, Yeah. right? Where finally his eyes are gouged out and he finally is the two pillars and God give me strength and he pushes him down. And it says Samson killed more Philistines at his death than his entire life. He missed a lot of the calling God had on his life because he didn't embrace the ways of God. Nonetheless, God can still use those people, yeah. right? God can, God use an ass in the Old Testament. If God can use this donkey, God can <laughs> use anybody. And so yeah. to discount someone and say, well, you know, we shouldn't have been embracing of somebody because of unrepentant sin. I, I mean, I, I understand the sentiment incredibly well. What I would say is, well, we have to make sure with elections, and I'm saying this because as a historical organization, we can spend a lot of time talking about different political leaders and their impact they had. The leaders who left the greatest impact, either positive or negative, it was based on their policies. Policy will always have a greater impact in someone's personality. And I'm not saying that to discount someone's sin in their life. As a Christian, I, I do care that we have people that want to reflect a godly standard because yeah. we know when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. We know that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is reproached to any people. We want righteousness in office, but righteousness in office is, is much more reflected by righteous policies than by the personality, by the tweeting, or by the past sin in someone's life. And again, I'm not saying that to excuse it at all, because certainly as a Christian, we recognize there's a lot of ungodliness that was there. Yeah. Nonetheless, it doesn't discount how God can use that person. And so that's just like kind of on a side note, backing up in time and history a little bit. This was this argument from Donald Trump as well, he's such a bad person. Okay. And, and we would tell people, wait a second, look at the policy, right? When, when you have two candidates and one is pro-life and one's pro-abortion yeah, all the way it. up to like end of life, partial, partial birth abortion, right? Like the, the baby is halfway out and we're killing the baby halfway out partial birth abortion one candidate's in favor of partial birth abortion one's in favor of life one's in favor of israel one's anti-israel like you start juxtaposing the positions they had in their policy it's very easy yeah. to understand that policy is what is going to bring god's blessing on a nation because those are things god can bless or curse yeah a anyway that's, that's kind of a side note i know that's not really the direction we wanted to go talking yeah. about thanksgiving but no, I, th I think that's good though because i think this is that we can disagree on politics but we can't disagree on um we we can't disagree on principles or sorry we can disagree on on it but but the one thing that we sh we can we can be apolitical but we can't be uh, unprincipled. We need to have principles. And so, but I don't think that that's really the issue, uh, to be totally honest with you. I, I I wonder about the framing that we hear so very often, and this goes back to things like the 1619 Project, um, when we hear about like, 
what I heard a lot is like Christian nationalism is one of the biggest issues with the church today. And I got I mean, I've been a pastor for 18 years. I roll in Christian evangelical circles. And I have to be honest with you, I didn't meet a single Christian nationalist in, in any of those 18 years. And also during the reign of Donald Trump, I'm not saying they don't exist. What I'm saying is, is that when we're talking about these issues, um, we have to be careful about the way that they're framed. And I think you brought out the, the point that matters the matters most. Um, it, it, when we're talking about the single issue of abortion, it is okay to be a single issue voter. When we're talking about the death of millions of babies, then, um, then I think shame on the Christian who says, oh, you're just simplifying things. Don't be a single issue voter. Um, no, I think that, that that issue matters among all of, of the issues. So, um, so but, the, but the point of all that is to say history, history matters. And if you care about history, you'll understand that any freedom-limiting, socialistic-leaning tendency in America is a threat and needs to be dealt with. Um, And, and, I mean, God bless them, evangelicals for Biden. Uh, You know, now you get to see the fruit of your labor. I mean, it's undeniable that uh, things are getting further and further into the toilet from an objective standpoint, but also I think we're seeing some some socialistic-leaning, some radical policies starting to unfold. So um, that being said... Uh, let's let's dig into uh, American history because I want my audience, especially, to be as informed as possible about who we are, because that's really been what's at the center of all of this, right? Who we are as Christians, who we are as a nation, and so um, I, I I first stumbled upon your work when you were on a podcast and you were talking about the difference between Plymouth and Jamestown. So could you try to illustrate some of those differences for us? I know there's a lot, and I know that's a big subject, but I think most people understand uh, American history through the lens of Jamestown but they don't know anything about Plymouth. So I think it's important for them to know about both. Yeah, so the, it, it's a, a really good question to ask right now because one of the things that is a, a system being taught in education right now is the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project, probably everybody knows. 2019, the New York Times came out with a special edition and, and they were highlighting the history of America and they said America started honestly in 1619 because that's when the first shipload of slaves arrived in Jamestown, et cetera. Now, they they really oversimplified a lot of things and they got so many things historically wrong it was boggling right they get a pulitzer prize for some of the worst history ever when you had even leftist like really leftist professors coming out saying yeah this is just bad history but it's important that right now we are we're hearing america was fundamentally a flawed and evil nation and, and we're learning that lesson at the the telling of the story of jamestown and so it's worth noting that if you look back in American history, it's a little bit like uh, Charles Dickinson's novel, The Tale of Two Cities, that America was not merely founded in Jamestown. There were two major early colonies, Jamestown and Plymouth. Now, just a historical record, Jamestown was not founded in 1619. Jamestown was founded in 1607. Mm -hmm. Jamestown was founded as a Christian colony. They were Anglicans, and Anglicans was the official religion, the, the, the kind of official version of Christianity under the king. And, and he enforced Anglicanism in his colonies. And so when the Jamestown colonies formed, it, uh, formed and founded, it is founded as an Anglican colony. And they actually have some, some really positive Christian language in their founding document. The challenge was the people of Jamestown 
they weren't people who read the Bible. They were people who more or less did what they were told to do by their political leaders, by their religious leaders. And so there's a lot of behavior they got into that was very ungodly and very unbiblical. But the history of Jamestown, there's a lot of fascinating stories, and there's a lot of really bad things from Jamestown as well. The story of Jamestown kind of unfolds when John Smith, Captain John Smith, is exploring in the woods. He has 20 men, and they're ambushed by a group of Native warriors, and the Natives kill all of these men except John Smith. He's the only survivor, and they then take him on parade, and they take him to several different villages, kind of showing the chief, right, so to speak, the chief of the tribe they just conquered. And so John Smith is on display, and, and he points out that uh, they took him and they laid his head on a rock. They were about to, to beat his brains out, is what he said. And Pocahontas comes over, and she runs and puts her head on his head, and so she saves his life. And Pocahontas was really kind of infatuated with not only John Smith, but kind of the Americans in general. And maybe because they were such a unique people, they were different, whatever it was, she was super impressed with them. And they actually form an alliance, so to speak, with the people of Jamestown. As this unfolds, the people of Jamestown, they've, they've grown up living in a colony where socialism is the norm in the sense that nobody really owns private property. Under the king, the king owns all the land, and the king would give land to certain lords or nobles, and then the lords and nobles would hire people, the serfs and the peasant, and they would come work for these officials. And at the end of the day of you working, you'd be given some food, you'd be given some money, but you were taken care of for your labor. The reason this is important is people weren't used to working for themselves. They, they weren't used to having to provide for themselves their own food, their own sustenance, right, growing their own crops. And so when they come to America, they really don't know how to survive in America. And they're really struggling, and, and they're hoping the king is going to send over more food and more supplies on the ships. In the midst of them having a hard time, they actually turned to the natives. And the natives, on several occasions, brought the people of Jamestown food to keep them alive. Well, 1609, they've now been here for coming up on two years, and John Smith is a governor. And, and John Smith has enforced a rule, a law in Jamestown, that said if a man would not work, he would not eat. Because in socialism, people tended toward laziness, and they didn't want to be productive. So John Smith takes over and actually gets a whip and goes to people's houses and beats them with a whip to make them get out in the fields to work and labor. Because he recognized if, if, if we don't work hard, if we're not productive, if we don't grow crops, we're not going to survive. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a protest in Jamestown. There actually was a gunpowder explosion. And John Smith was injured in this gunpowder explosion. It was largely believed to have been a, an intentional attack, uh, that there was sabotage. They were trying to eliminate him. Well, he had to go back to England to find help for his injuries. And so while he's over in England getting help, they now have new leaders in Jamestown. And, and the people of Jamestown said, look, that John Smith guy, he was a jerk. He made his work really hard. We don't like that. So we're just going to take it easy. Well, when winter comes, this was known as a starving time in Jamestown, the winter of 1609 to 1610. They're totally out of food. And by the way, in the midst of them being out of food, they recognize their food's getting low. One of the things they did is they actually started Indian Wars. And what they did is they went to some of the local villages, said, hey, guys, we're out of food. We need help. And the natives are like, we... We have to feed ourselves too, right? Like we can't just continue to give you food over and over. At some point, you got to feed yourself. The people of Jamestown got angry and they declared war on these tribes and they went and attacked these tribes and villages to try to take their food from them so they could feed themselves. Well, the starving time, they don't have any food. And so they say, well, we're just going to have to eat that, the livestock. So they start off eating the cattle, they eat the horses, they run out of food. So then they eat what we would know as pets. They eat the dogs and the cats, and they run out of food. Now, at this time, there was roughly 490 people of Jamestown, and people are already starving to death. 
So almost daily, they're having people dying. They're taking them to kind of their cemetery, the graveyard. They're burying them. When they ran out of the dogs and cats, and, and now they're turning to rabbits or squirrels, whatever they can find, at some point, somebody said, hey, you know, those people that died, their bodies are in the cemetery. We can just go dig up those bodies and, and eat the meat off those bones because they're already dead. So they literally went and they cannibalized the bodies wow. in the cemetery. When they ran out of those bodies, they actually turned to cannibalism and they actually killed and ate each other at times. There was a horrific account of a husband who had a pregnant wife and he killed his wife and ate his wife and the unborn child from his wife. Wow. Now, the reason I bring all this up is it's interesting when we study history, one of the things that we think sh the way history should be taught, the way the Bible teaches history, you teach the good, the bad, and the ugly. When we learn the story of King David from the Bible, the Bible tells us about David as a young shepherd and, and David killed Goliath and you go, man, this guy's amazing. And, and David writes the Psalms and he's this incredible warrior and an incredible worshiper. But we also learn about David as a father. We learn about Absalom. We learn about Amnon. We learn about Adonijah. We learn David's really a pretty terrible father. He doesn't yeah. correct his kids. He, he doesn't lead his kids. And we learn that at a time when kings went to war, David stayed back and he had this affair with Bathsheba and he has Uriah, her husband, bumped off on the front lines, essentially murders Uriah, the husband. Like David was not merely just this really great warrior and worshiper. David actually was a very complex person who was a human with human nature at incredibly sinful moments. But what we see is the entire picture of the story of David. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we see how David at times repented and came back to God, and, and God used David in mighty ways. But we see that David was an imperfect person, but a perfect God used him and did impressive things through him. Well, let me, just ask, let me just ask a real question real quick there, because this is one of the things that we're hearing when it relates to history, is that we're hearing that uh, history is being whitewashed when actually— I think what we're actually doing is we're hearing that um, whenever we find any issue in history, because there's this utopian sentiment almost that history was supposed to be perfect, and if it's not perfect, then it must be totally destroyed. Um, so what do you think, and, and maybe I'm wrong about that assessment, but where do you think that idea of kind of like this utopianizing of history is coming from? Because it's obvious that like Jamestown, <laughs> like it's not pretty everything that's going on there. No, so it's very interesting the, the way you're, you're asking the question, this utopian idea. You know, I, I, I think that where the utopian idea came from started with a, a lack of basic biblical knowledge. You know, I think historically it, it, it used to be that as you studied a history book, people didn't have to start off with a disclaimer that these weren't perfect people. Yeah. Right? Like we, we didn't have to say, hey, guys, assumed. George Washington wasn't perfect. And this is important because when we said George Washington is an incredible American hero— like today, when people find out that George Washington was in fact a human and not perfect, they're like, well, then he can't be a great American hero. No, two things can be true at once. Yeah. It can be true that he was not perfect. And yet, like how in the world could David be a man after God's own heart and have so much sin in his life? And a murderer right? like, this, is, this is a legit question. Yeah. It's important because if in, in the midst of cancel culture, when we're saying that if someone had a sinful moment in their life, they should be canceled, understand as a Christian, how could you ever sing a Psalm of David? How could you ever go through Psalm 23, right? If this dude's supposed to be canceled because we recognize two things can be true at once. Yeah. We recognize that someone can be imperfect and jacked up and have many messed up moments. And what is going to also be true is God can still use that person for his kingdom, for his glory, and do great things through them in spite of their sinfulness. Mm -hmm. This is the reality of humanity and history. And so I think when you look at even American history, like this utopian idea, I think it used to be said that we, we had these incredible American heroes, and you could go through and list the American heroes, and it's true, they were great American heroes, 
But that was in the understanding of the context that there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you understand, like, my starting place in history is that everybody is jacked up and needs Jesus. That's yep. my starting place, right? So I'm never going to be surprised if, if, if you told me, can you believe this person did this? Yes. Like, <laughs> that, I will always believe. You know what's funny about always, that is you're a historian, too, and history teaches you that, man. It's like if right. you know history, you don't look at Nazi Germany and you're like, those evil people, you think to yourself— Boy, if the human heart is capable of that, what am I capable of? But it, it, we don't Correct. we don't seem to do that with history. Yeah, and this is where I think too some of it's getting away from just basic biblical truth. Yeah, where you know we we live in a culture now when when you reject, reject biblical truth, right? We we know now the majority of Americans think that that people are basically good. Well, well, that's not a biblical position, yeah. right? The biblical position is we are sinners in need of a savior. So so we're not basically good. We're basically sinners. We're imperfect people. We have flesh. And, and until we learn to crucify the flesh, right? Until we come to Jesus and we have a regenerated heart through Christ Jesus, where old things pass away and all things become new, until that moment, we're we're not basically good people, and, and like depending on the way you determine your theology, like maybe even arguably after that, like maybe even after that, you're <laughs> not basically work, a good yeah. person. It's only right the work of Christ in you. It's His blood that covers you. All that being said, is people that know the Bible, they I think have a better perspective of this. Where people that don't know the Bible that have been told, well, these are great people, then for them it's a shock when they find out they weren't perfect and they had sinful moments in their life. And then they're like, well, we should cancel that person. And, and this is a very inconsistent position because if the if the idea or the logic is that we should cancel everyone who wasn't perfect, then everyone in the history of the world will be canceled yeah. with the exception of Jesus. And that's probably okay on some level, but like, it doesn't make sense. The people that want to cancel the imperfect people, they would be canceling themselves if they were intellectually honest and just thought through what they're arguing. But I think this is part of where that thought comes from, that when you don't have the biblical foundation that teaches that, that we are sinful men who need a regenerated heart through the, the blood, that right, the sacrifice of Jesus, if we don't have that position, then, it, then it, I can see where someone would come to this thought thinking, well, you know, people kept saying how great America was, but America wasn't great. Look at all these sinful moments. Well, both things can actually be true, yeah. that there were some incredibly sinful moments in our nation's history, and yet... God used people in incredible ways to advance civilization, to advance society, to advance equality in this nation, unlike almost any other nation in the history of the world. So this really is a special nation with incredible heroes who were not perfect people, but they were people used by a perfect God, and that God did great things through them. Yeah, so if you don't appreciate um, God, I think, then you then you emphasize the negative and you totally underestimate the, the positive. Um, yes. And it seems to be happening a lot, right? So, so let's talk about Plymouth, because while there are obvious imperfections with everything, there, there seems to be a different kind of thing going on with the way that Plymouth was founded. Yeah, and, and, and let me too, so to, to highlight Plymouth, let me finish the thought of Jamestown. Yeah. So what's interesting about Jamestown, like the 1619 Project, right, it talks about that's when the, the first shipload of slaves arrived in Jamestown. What's interesting about this thought is that Actually, even though that first shipload of slaves arrived in Jamestown, in 1619, slavery was illegal in Jamestown. Hmm. They, they, it was against the Let's common law. Up. Like, you can look this up. Like, we tell people, don't, don't, don't take my word. Anything I'm telling you, don't take my word for it. Go look it up. One of the reasons America is in the, the troubled situation we are in is because for far too long, we've just trusted the experts to tell us what was true. Yeah. Instead of being like the Bereans in Acts 17 and saying, hey, let me look this up for myself, right? Like, I know you're the Apostle Paul, but I'm still going to get the scroll out and verify what you're saying is true. I would encourage people, 
Don't take my word for it. Go look it up. In 1619, slavery was illegal in Jamestown. So when the, that first shipload of slaves arrived, they became indentured servants. And this is a very different scenario. As an indentured servant, you worked for a determined period of years. At the end of those years, you were given your freedom. And in the Jamestown colony, you were given land. So all of those original slaves became free landowners in America. And some people might argue, yeah, but, but they were still slaves for those years. They were indentured servants. And, and, and so maybe, like maybe, they, they were treated as slaves. Maybe they were treated poorly. Now, I don't think there's really historical evidence for that, but just for the sake of argument, let's say for those, for those seven years, for example, let's say it was really bad for seven years. But also keep in mind, those slaves had been on a Portuguese slave trading ship. That Portuguese ship was attacked by two British privateer ships. Those British privateer ships took the slaves off, and that's one of those ships came to Jamestown, and that's where they unloaded those slaves at Jamestown. Had that Portuguese ship been able to go on, it was heading to either the Caribbean, Cuba, maybe Brazil. Had that ship arrived where it was going, what was the average lifespan of the slaves in those other nations? And it was only like one to three years. Wow. Had they gone anywhere else, they likely would have died as slaves. They never would have had a chance to get freedom or be a free landowner in America. And the reason I point this out is like even the way we're telling the history of Jamestown, we're lying about Jamestown and part of what happened to try to make Jamestown look bad. And my point is, if you want to make Jamestown look bad, just tell the honest story of Jamestown because <laughs> yeah. you will see the sinful moments of Jamestown and go, man, those people were not always really good people. That's the reality of history. Yeah. You don't have to lie about history to, to make something look bad. If you just tell the honest story, you will find the bad moments because there's good, bad, and ugly in the whole story. But this is where Plymouth was so different. The, the, the people of Plymouth, right? The, the pilgrims, they were actually a church congregation that had been in England, then they went to Holland. And then from Holland, they come back, get ships in England, and they come to America, to the New World. It was largely a church congregation, and they were striving to live life differently. Governor Bradford, a, a famous name from the pilgrims, right? William Bradford, yep. the, the longest lasting governor of the pilgrims, he actually in his journal talked about how as as their own people, they would spend hours in the Bible a day, six to eight hours a day, trying to study and learn from the Bible. And this is where, when you look at the pilgrims, when they arrived, everything they did was different than Jamestown. The pilgrims, when they arrived, they'd actually been trying to get to Jamestown because that's where they had been given permission by the king to go. Their charter was to go to Jamestown, but providentially, because when initially they were coming, there were two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. The Speedwell had holes, and they had to kept turning back and trying to fix the ship. And when finally they decided, we're just going to take one ship and go to the New World, it was really late. They, they'd lost several months in their journey. So when they arrive in the New World, they're going to arrive in winter. So that's a hard time to show mm, up anywhere yeah. for your first time. But there was a winter storm, and the winter storm blew them north, so they couldn't even make it to Jamestown. So now they're going to have to to dock ship an unknown, uncharted area. They, they don't know what's going on. But interestingly enough, they recognize before we get off the ship, we need to have a covenant between ourselves, a covenant with God, and they write the Mayflower Compact. And in this covenant, they actually said that part of the reason they had come, and, and you can read this, it's, it's like in the first paragraph. It says, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith yeah. is why they had come to the new world. Well, when they get off that ship and, and, and they start trying to survive, they had actually heard from the people of Jamestown how the natives could be really mean because that was the, what the Jamestown people encountered when they had started wars with the people of Jamestown or with the natives. And, and actually the, the natives, the, the first encounter with John Smith and his men where they had attacked some of his men and they, they actually killed everybody but John Smith, they had heard all these horror stories from the people of Jamestown. So they had really negative expectations, but the first native they meet is Somerset. And, and, and Somerset speaks some English and, and he tells them, hey, 
I, I actually have somebody else, a friend who speaks even more English than I do. And Samastek comes back and he introduces them to Chief Massasoit, introduces them to Squanto. And Squanto realizes these guys need a lot of help. And Squanto lives with the pilgrims for the next two years up until Squanto dies. And actually when Squanto died, one of the things he told the pilgrims who were with him, he said, please pray for me that, that I may go to your God and, and I may be with him in his heaven mm. because he had seen the way the pilgrims lived and he was so impressed by them that he wanted what they had and what they had lived their life experiencing. Well, even when you get to the first Thanksgiving, it's super interesting because the first winter of the pilgrims, half of the pilgrims died the first winter. So you come to the first Thanksgiving and it's worth asking the question, like, what were they thanking God for that first Thanksgiving? Because <laughs> yeah. like half of like, right, your family, your siblings, your parents, half of your people died. What they were thanking God for was that along the way, when they were in their most desperate hour of need, God had brought them provision in the manner of Squanto. Squanto taught them how to fish, how to hunt, how to plant and grow crops. And so that fall, when they're having this Thanksgiving, they actually had crops that they thought we might actually survive and make it this winter. Whereas like last winter, right? They, they were starving to death. They said this winter, we might make it. We should thank God that God has helped bring us provision and God has brought us friends and allies and, and look what we've done. And so that first Thanksgiving, there were 53 remaining pilgrims. There were about 22 males. The rest were women and children. And they were joined. Chief Massasoit brought 90 Indian braves and for three days, the pilgrims feasted with the Indians and they actually did athletic competitions. They had races and they had wrestling competitions, they had shooting competitions. But for three days, they feasted and celebrated. They fellowshiped together. And also what's worth noting is that the Indians brought much of the food they feasted on for those three days. Mm. So one of the things that it's crazy today that we hear, well, instead of Thanksgiving, there's actually cities who are saying instead of Thanksgiving, we should have a, a national day of mourning because of how evil the pilgrims were. And this is a crazy thought. And yet, because we don't know history, people are embracing this. Cities, yeah. literally cities are saying, we're rejecting Thanksgiving. We won't do Thanksgiving parades. We're going to have a day of mourning instead. You only can, can come to that conclusion if you don't know any history at all about the pilgrims. Because right, if the pilgrims had actually mistreated the Indians, that first Thanksgiving would have gone very differently. Right. There were only 22 male pilgrims. There were 90 Indian braves. The Indians at any moment could have killed and defeated, taken all the pilgrims' possessions, taken the land back. But the pilgrims actually had the longest lasting peace treaty between any Western European settlers, any Anglos, and any natives in American history. It lasted more than 50 years. And the reason was when the pilgrims arrived, they, they knew the king had said, you can go live in this new land. But when they get there, they meet these Indians and, and they tell the natives, hey, we want to build a place. They actually negotiate with the natives for the purchase and possession of the land where they built their colonies. In fact, in the history of the pilgrims, one of the things that they acknowledged is that for the next 50 years, they never built on a single piece of land that they did not legally purchase from the Indians at a mm -hmm. price agreed upon by the Indians. Now, this is different than the people of Jamestown, but this is the legacy of Plymouth that today is largely forgotten. And this is where these two colonies are so different. I would argue America was, as a whole, as a nation, our nation was much more shaped by the legacy of Plymouth, by, by the heritage of the pilgrims than we were by Jamestown, which also then makes it ironic that we're teaching students in school the history of our nation as if Jamestown was the largest influence on our nation. When Jamestown wasn't the largest influence, Plymouth was a much more significant influence on America than Jamestown was. You know what's so interesting, yeah, is that the conversation of critical race theory is always, don't call it critical race theory, just call it history, right? We just want comprehensive history. But it's so interesting to me that, by and large, what you just said 
will never enter into their definition of comprehensive history. It's always going to be 1619-esque, Jamestown-esque, if you will, kind of revisionist history. They're never going to to insert these other moments that undermine the narrative of what America actually was, which was a complicated story. I mean, to say the least, it wasn't clear-cut. It wasn't um, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. In times it was good. In times it was bad. It was both and, and all of these things. So I think this interesting dynamic of history uh, should be taught. But, uh, but unfortunately, that's not what, what it seems that people really want. Um, so yeah. I, I, I want to step back just for a moment, and then we can revisit Thanksgiving just a little bit because I have some questions about that. But I think this is important for my audience to know, too, about Squanto. Is Squanto knew English. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, Squanto knew English because he was actually rescued by Christian, by Christian monks. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that story? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you back up to when Jamestown is a colony, one of the things that happens early on in Jamestown days, uh, there's other explorers who are selling up and down the coast. And actually, this is one of the reasons um, that there were there were often bad relationships between the the people of Jamestown and the natives. At times, there were certain tribes they got along with, but generally speaking, they didn't always have the most godly behavior. And so obviously when you're treating people in an ungodly manner, it doesn't encourage them to be your good friend. So one of the things that happened is is there was a a Captain Thomas Hunt who uh, was on a a exploring expedition and he got off and there were a group of natives and he essentially kidnaps these natives and took them over to England to sell or back to Europe to sell. And, and when they got to Europe to sell, and I think there were 27 of them is, is my recollection. And actually, uh, we can look that up. That's it's a very well-known number. And I'm just I'm yeah. I, I didn't look this story up relevant. before we talk. So I'm right. Take this number loosely. But I think it was 27 uh, natives that were were initially uh, taken back over to Europe. And what happened is they were put on the slave trading blocks because the slave trade was a real thing back then. And so these natives put on a slave trade block and there were some some friars um, who saw them, right? Some some Christian friars who saw these natives being sold. And so they went and, and some of the natives already been sold, but they went and bought every single one they could. And they bought the majority of the natives and they brought them back to live with them at their monastery. And on the monastery, they actually taught them how to speak English. They took care of them, they fed them. And that's where Squanto was for several years in 1619. And, and there's a lot of providence to this story because Squanto's tribe was actually uh, the ones that lived the area where the pilgrims, sh- uh, their ship landed and where they set up their first colony. So Squanto's tribe, that's actually part of where his tribe used to live. That was part of their land, their possession. So Squanto is over in England and in and, and 1619 finds a ship that's sailing back to Jamestown. So he gets back to Jamestown and works his way back up to where his people were. When he gets back, he founds out that a disease had come and spread and it had killed every single member of his tribe. He was the only one who survived. Now, again, there's a lot of God's providence in this story that God would preserve this one individual and in the midst of a terrible situation, right? We, we know Romans 8, 28, that God can cause all things to work together for good for yeah. those 11 who are called according to his purpose. You can go to the end of Genesis when Joseph tells his brothers, after he's been sold into slavery, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We know that we serve a God who can take bad moments and, and cause good to come out of bad moments. Squanto going into slavery, I mean, this is really like kind of the story of Joseph in the Bible, right? Like him going into slavery is not a good moment, but in slavery, God rescues him, God protects him, God gives him favor, and he learns English in 1619. He's on a ship, he's coming back to the, the new world. He lands in the new world, goes home, and realizes everyone, his entire family, his wife, everyone's gone. They, they all died of this disease. And it's also interesting for, for the natives back then 
they didn't understand disease like we understand disease today. And in fact, nobody back then really understood it the way we do it today, but certainly the natives didn't. And so what they thought was there was an evil spirit on that area. And so the natives said, then, then we're not going to live here. We're going to leave that land alone, which again is providential because the pilgrims land on an area that the natives have determined to be kind of unclean because of this disease. So the natives are like, we don't want this land. So the pilgrims land there. And when they finally encounter the natives and they say, hey, we want this land, the natives are very willing to sell them the land because like, we don't want to live here. There's you know something bad here. And the pilgrims are like, yeah, we're good. We, you know, we're not worried about that. But Squanto then is the most providential guy that he goes back that the, the pilgrim ship just happens to land in the area, like just happens, right? This is providence, just happens, quotation marks. The pilgrim ship lands in the exact area where Squanto's people have been. Squanto comes back, this guy who's been over in England. So nobody in the new world, no native knew the pilgrim's customs better than Squanto. He's the one guy who can help merge the old world and the new world together and help the pilgrims learn how to survive. It's an incredible, amazing, providential yeah. moment in, in the history of this nation. And it's one of the areas, again, where when, when we look at history from our organization, because we know there is a God, when we study history, we are very cognizant of God moments like this, where, man, look what God just did in this moment. Look how God used this person. History becomes much more fascinating when you keep God part of the story. One of the challenges with modern history is, right, for most of us growing up in history, it was really like dates and dead people. Yeah. There, there, there were no stories involved. The, the reason that we can read and, and be fascinated by the story of Joshua or Caleb or David or Paul or Elijah, or like you pick these heroes from the Bible, why we're fascinated with their story is because it tells us their story, but their story includes the God moments in their story. And, and the story of history is, it's an inaccurate story if you, if you exclude God, but it's always a much more fascinating story when you recognize the God moments. 100%. And this is certainly one of those things that when you study the history, especially of the pilgrims, it's very easy to see the God moments when God showed up and helped them and providentially moved on their behalf or brought them friends and allies along the way. It's, it's one of these overlooked parts of American history that is really one of the most significant foundations to the nation that America became. Yeah, and so circling back to Thanksgiving, so Squanto's there, and if I'm not mistaken, the people of Plymouth are struggling with crop growing and all that stuff. Squanto goes in and helps them, um, and they're actually, their subsistence, their living is, is in helped by the Indians and these two groups of people working together. And so that, that first Thanksgiving is a celebration of God's providence. It's a celebration of the fact that though they've experienced great turmoil and difficulty, they're, those who are there are alive and they're able to celebrate together with Native Americans, the relationship that they've built uh, helping one another out, which is, again, just like the modern revisionist understanding of this is just that, like, um, it, it, that white people came in, stole everything from Indians, kicked them out of their homeland. Uh, but there's no understanding of of the the greatness of this celebration and how it was a meeting together of two people from two totally different worlds and how they came together to to help each other survive, which I think is such a powerful celebration for us. It, it is, and it really should be something that. As we look at the legacy of Plymouth, and, and, and first of all, there's, as you mentioned, incredible unity that we should be able to celebrate, that, that God was able to bring people together, and, and God helped them together to benefit each other in a lot of regards. But it's also worth noting, one of the legacies of Plymouth is when you look at even from Plymouth, there were other settlements and colonies that went out. Like Roger Williams went to Rhode Island, uh, Thomas Hooker went to Connecticut. You had different people going to different colonies, but what's interesting is 
because the people from Plymouth were people of the book, they were people who studied and knew the Word of God, they understood that the single issue covered the most arguably in the Ten Commandments is the issue of private property, because you're not supposed to steal, don't even covet what somebody else is. Everybody who left Plymouth and went and started their own colonies, they actually purchased those that land where they built their colony from the local tribes where they were. In fact, it gets fascinating when you get to a guy like William Penn. William Penn's father was the Admiral William Penn, who had won many victories for the king over in England, and the king kind of owed him a commission for these victories. And the king said, hey, what if I just kind of give you this new land and I'll name it in your honor? We'll call it Pennsylvania. Well, William Penn was a—the son was a Quaker, and so there was a lot of uh, frustration between him and the king. He was in prison many times because back then you were only allowed to attend the Anglican church. When William Penn is a Quaker, they kept having Quaker meetings, and that was illegal, so he was thrown in prison. So his father finally kind of negotiates with the king and says, hey, how about we do everybody a favor? You let my son out of jail. We'll send him over to my property in the new world. That way I'm happy because my son's not in jail. You're happy because he's not here. It's a win-win. And so this is kind of what happens to get William Penn and, and actually many of the Quakers coming to Pennsylvania. What's interesting is when, when William Penn gets to Pennsylvania and, and they begin building their colony, their settlement, they actually, William Penn bought that land from three different tribes. Because when they're building it, the first tribe comes up and, and they say, what are you doing? We're building here. Well, this is our land. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Can I buy this land from you? Buys it from the first tribe. A second tribe comes and says virtually the same thing. And then a third tribe comes and says virtually the same thing. William Penn bought that land from three different tribes because those three tribes had all been warring tribes <laughs> and they had battled over who actually owned the land. But here's what's significant. It would have been very easy for William Penn to go, guys, the king gave this land to me. This was a gift to my father. All of this land is mine. But that wasn't the position that the people from Plymouth took. Now, that was something people from Jamestown, that was more of the mantra of Jamestown. But this, again, is where we'd point back and say this was a tale of two cities in early America. Yeah. Jamestown and Plymouth had a very different impact, a very different legacy. And again, the legacy of Plymouth was far more impactful to shaping the foundation of this nation than was the legacy of Jamestown. It's just that we don't largely hear about that legacy today, but it's it's definitely there. It's easily discoverable if we just went back and started studying and reading. And again, this is where we would encourage original documents, because when you study original documents, it's a lot easier to get past some of maybe the the persuasion or the political agenda that maybe current professors might have in their writing. 100%. So I want to ask a personal question now, kind of on a personal note, with knowing, and this is true of me too, it, it impacts the way I celebrate, uh, knowing history impacts the way I celebrate Christmas and other holidays, knowing history as you do, um, is there any recommendations you'd give, especially Christians, but really just people who care about history um, in the way that they celebrate Thanksgiving this year? Maybe something that's carried over from that original Thanksgiving celebration, or maybe something that even that you guys have adopted in your home that really underscores the importance and the, the nature of what that first Thanksgiving was really all about. That's a great question. I, I think probably... Uh, an area we, we do get this right in some regards to the original Thanksgiving. Generally in America, we do a pretty good job with food, yeah. with fellowships. <laughs> you and, have and no with problem sports. with food in America, yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, generally speaking, we're going to have a feast and actually leftovers. They're amazing. I'm a fan. But food, fellowship, and sports, that was all part of the first Thanksgiving. Where we largely get it wrong is the time they took really thinking and acknowledging what God had done in their life. And yeah. also keep in mind, these were people whose lives had been devastated but they recognized the only reason they were still here at all was because of what God had done. They were able to look and, and see the good that God had done for them along the way in spite of their hardship. And this is something that I think as Americans, 
You know, so often we, we don't recognize the blessings of God as much as we should, where we know the story where Jesus healed the 10 lepers. And, and it says, all right, go present yourself before the priest. And only one comes back and he says, didn't I heal 10 of you? Yeah. Where are the other nine? We're not always very good as, as Christians in general, but certainly not in America, at remembering to thank God for what God has done. And, and so one of the traditions we do in our family, and, and we have extended family, we get together, so all the aunts and uncles and cousins, and we get together and, and, and we'll have a, a big meal together. Before we eat the meal, we take time, we go around the entire room and everybody says, what are you thankful to God for what he did for you this year? And we, we, we name some things that we recognize that God did for us. And I think where we've lost some perspective, what the pilgrims used to do, the day of Thanksgiving was really a day of Thanksgiving. And only after they had taken time to give thanks and acknowledge God and be grateful to God, then they spent time in the food and the fellowship and the sports. And I think the thing that probably we need to recapture the most is remembering that the first Thanksgiving wasn't thanking God for abundance. They didn't have abundance. Yeah. Now, certainly if you have abundance, you should thank God for abundance. That's awesome. But they, they had enough. They said, I don't think we're going to starve this winter. That's a crazy thought that they weren't thanking God that their cup was running over. They were thanking God they had something in their cup yeah. because they had a chance to make it and they knew Without God, they wouldn't even had something in their cup. And had God not brought friends and allies along the way, it's, it's a different perspective that I think as Americans, sometimes we get very spoiled and we get very used to being very spoiled with the blessings and abundance we have in America. And I know that's not everybody. There's probably people listening right now who are thinking, man, that's not, that's not my life. I'm not living in abundance right now. We can still find things to thank God for, even if our cup is not running over, so to speak. We can still recognize that God has been moving in our life. God has been working on our behalf. God has not abandoned or forsaken us. There's a lot of promises of scripture we can still cling to. And I think we ought to do a better job at being grateful and thankful to God for who he is, for what he's done for us over this past year. That's awesome. Yeah, we need to put the thanks back in Thanksgiving. That's uh, that's simple, but so so great and so apropos. Um, the only th- other thing I would throw in there, just kind of on a personal note, is I think probably helping you put the thanks in that Thanksgiving is because we are so blessed with abundance. And I think a lot of the ailments that we're seeing in, in, in America today come from a removal of God as the center of our focus, yes. and then also to um, abundance in the in the midst of that. Um, is, we don't find ourselves grateful for things. So I think another thing that people could do for this Thanksgiving is to uh, go find a place to serve, go find a, a place to help the homeless community, make sure that they've got a Thanksgiving uh, meal, food on their table uh, prior to Thanksgiving or on Thanksgiving Day. I know there's uh, lots of opportunities to do, and I, I try to do that with my family. And I think that that is a reminder uh, to be thankful for what you have, yes. uh, no matter what state that, that you're in. Um, thankful that you have the opportunity to give. Um, so uh, so that's really, really awesome. So I, I, I'm hoping you've got some curriculum some things for people who do homeschool, uh, maybe even for Christian schools, but give us a, some information about w- how we can stay up to date with what you guys are doing and how we can access some of your really awesome life-giving resources over at Wall Builders. Absolutely. So the best place to go, first of all, is wallbuilders.com. We have so many resources there. And again, everything we've been talking about, I encourage people, don't take my word for anything I'm saying. Go look it up. On our website, we actually have a, a link. There's It's for library. Under library, there's original sources. You can go look these original sources. We, we have more than 100,000 artifacts and documents from before 1812, so Early America Foundation. We actually have some original things from the actual pilgrims that came across on the Mayflower, so some really cool stuff in our collection. Uh, but you can get on our website and read a lot of that. We also, we're all over social media. We have a daily radio program, so there's a lot of ways people can find us and connect. 
probably one of the best resources I would recommend for, for some of this conversation, but also recognizing where we are in culture. We have a book called The American Story, and we start essentially with Christopher Columbus. We go roughly to the ending of slavery in America, and we try to just tell the honest story where we, we acknowledge, like for Christopher Columbus, people want to cancel Columbus now because of whatever accusation they want to talk about. Columbus, like all of us, was a sinner who needs a savior. He was not a perfect person, but he's not guilty of most of the crimes of which he's accused today. Hmm. And so what we do is just go through and we just tell the story, the honest story, kind of like the story of Jamestown, the story of Plymouth. Just tell the whole story, the good, the bad, the ugly, like the Bible does with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a murderer of Christians, and then he encountered God, and then he was an amazing leader in the church and, and really shaping right that the movement of the church right in the majority of the new testament you can just tell the honest story and in the midst of the honest story also recognizing how god showed up in that moment and, and what god did to change his life and use him that's what we try to do largely in the american story is we highlight the moments where it's very obvious god showed up in fact we even include there's over a thousand footnotes uh, and so we include many times those statements from those individuals themselves when they acknowledge that god showed up miraculously in this way and what he did etc so it's a great way to study and learn American history. It's uh, written in a, a, a narrative form, biographical form. So it's very easy to read and go through. It's not a, a dead, dry history book with just dates and dead people and names. Yeah. It's a lot more fascinating, but there's a lot of stuff on our website. Wallbuilders.com is the best place to go. Awesome. So I'll link uh, to the store too in the description for this so that people can go straight to that book and grab that. And awesome. then one of the things I always try to do for my guests is I'll buy some books and then give those away to our uh, email subscribers, but you got to be on the list for that. So go to IndieThinker.org and sign up for that. Uh, but yeah, man, I'm so thankful for your voice in, in, the, in the world and in our nation. I think the truth is way more provocative and way more interesting than kind of the fabricated lies that we're telling ourselves today. So thank you for everything that you're doing in the marketplace of ideas. Reed, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Thanks so much for watching. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.